0: Okay everybody if we could uh please return to our seats and we'll have our scripture reading and Okay maybe not. <laughs> okay let's uh, get back to our seats now. Good morning, everyone. Uh, This morning's scripture uh, is from 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world Father, we thank you for this day that you have blessed us with. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us uh, to come together this morning. And, uh, Father, just uh, worship you, Uh, just to sing praises in your name, Father. I just pray that uh, the worship time that we spent today, Father, has brought honor and glory to you. Father, I just pray that uh, you be with this congregation today, Father. Uh, that uh, you open our hearts, that you open our ears, that you open our minds, Father, to receive the uh, scripture that Josh is going to present to us today. Father, I ask your blessing to be upon Josh. Uh, Father, calm him, comfort him. Uh, Father, let the words that he speaks be your words. Father, we ask that you be with uh, the members of our congregation uh, that are traveling. Uh, Father, just ask for that hedge of protection around each and every one of them. Uh, Father, we ask that you be with those that are physically sick. Father, we have many in our congregation that are fighting sickness right now. Uh, Father, just ask that your healing hand be upon them. Father, we just ask that you be with those that are spiritually sick. Uh, Father, that they may call upon you and that you may uh, calm their heart and reassure them. uh, Father, of your great love. Father, we ask that you be with the teachers of our youth today. Uh, Father, uh, just guide them in uh, the leading uh, this morning's class. Uh, Father, just be with the youth. Uh, Father, just allow them to open their hearts and accept you, Father, and accept uh, the teachings that are brought upon them. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. Uh, Father, we just ask that you forgive us of our sins. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.
1: Okay, good. Great to be with you all today. I trust you had um, good times celebrating Christ and his coming. That's what we celebrate this time of year, right? Is Christ and his coming and the salvation that he came to bring us. Um, he was born not just to give us warm fuzzies and nice feelings inside, but he was born. Ultimately, to die and rise again for our salvation. Um, this morning, I want to I talk to you about the love of God and the profound and powerful effect effects that it has on our lives. This actually probably, probably is, is, I mean, almost the message I would have preached last week if we would have had a church if a church hadn't been canceled because of weather. Um, so I'm, but I tweeted a bit. You know, we, we were doing an Advent series. Uh, From the beginning of December, and we ended on Christmas Eve, where we were looking at uh, how Christ has come to give us hope. That was the first uh, Sunday. How Christ has come to give us peace. That was the next. How Christ has come to give us uh, joy. That was two Sundays ago. And last week would have been how Christ has come to manifest and demonstrate God's love for us. Um, And so I'm going to kind of take what I would have said last week, but. You know, as we're nearing the new year, I also think it's a good time. Uh, You know, I'm kind of against resolutions if it becomes dogmatic and legalistic and things like that. But actually, resolutions can be biblical. Um, Paul prays for the people of Thessalonica. In 2 Thessalonians 1, he prays, May God fulfill every resolve for good. So what he's saying is every resolve you make for good, may God fulfill that. And so this morning, I, I kind of want to take the message I would have preached last week and tweak it a bit and, and, and also look forward to 2014 and, um, and say, why don't we seek in 2014 to make our one aim what it should be, and that's to grow in love. As believers in Christ, as followers of Christ, that is the, that is the supreme value and quality that we should have in our lives is that we are loving people, is that we are, like Christ was, loving one another. Um, This is not something that is an isolated command in the New Testament, but it's the consistent tenor of the entire New Testament, is that for the Christian, they ought to be loving people. Jesus says something stunning in Matthew 22, when he's talking to a lawyer who was an expert in the law. And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. We know that. We've heard that before. But what he says after that is almost stunning. He says, On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. On these two commandments, to love God with everything you have, And then to love your neighbor, who's your neighbor? The person next to you, the person in front of you, the person behind you, the person that lives next to you, the person that lives down the street, the person you run to at the store. To love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets, all the Mosaic law, all the prophets, and I think included in that also is the Psalms and the history books. The entire Old Testament hangs on those two commandments. Paul says this in Galatians 5. Again, emphasizing and elevating love as the supreme quality for believers in Christ. He says, he's he's dealing with the controversy in the church of Galatia. There are some who've come in and said, yes, you need to believe in Jesus to be justified, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to do something else to add to what Jesus has done, and then you're saved. And Paul came in and combated that and said, no, it's by faith in Christ alone. And here's what Paul said in Galatians 5. He says, circumcision counts for nothing. Neither does uncircumcision. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Okay? Faith working through love. Faith in Christ that is now demonstrated and shown in the way that we love one another. Again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, this is a passage that many know. Um, Many of you have heard this. You've heard it called the love chapter. And it starts off, or it doesn't start off, but it, there's love is this, love is kind, love is patient, love is, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's called the love chapter. But at the beginning, Paul says some stunning things because he's in the midst of talking about spiritual gifts. I want spiritual gifts. You want spiritual gifts. We want to be powerfully used by God. And he says, if we have amazing gifts, faith that can move mountains, prophetic insights that are stunning mysteries we know mysteries we are even so dedicated that we are willing to give our bodies to be burned at the stake but if we don't have love all of our gifts are worthless and we ourselves amount to nothing love is supreme love is preeminent love is to be elevated above all things But, something traumatic happened through the fall, so that our hearts are naturally curved inward on ourselves. Through the fall of Adam and Eve, and we were all plunged into that, we were all born in sin, That had a massive effect upon our hearts. Our our hearts are naturally curved inward on ourselves so that we will not love and even more, we cannot love. We don't have the ability to love in the way that we are commanded to in in the way that God intends for us to. We are unable and incapable of doing it. And apart from a miracle, we won't because we can't. We need a miracle so profound the New Testament likens it to being raised from the dead. We need a miracle so profound that it, the, the New Testament says it's like we are dead in our sins and our self-centeredness and we need to be raised from the dead. Ephesians chapter 2 says it was while we were dead in our sins and trespasses and incapable and unable, unwilling to turn outward and love others as Christ had loved us. It was when we were dead that God in his mercy made us alive together with Christ. This is the kind of miracle that we need. This is the kind of miracle that Christmas is actually all about. And a song that is sung uh, this time of year called Hark the Herald Angels Sing, um, written by a guy named Charles Wesley, and also tweaked by a guy named George Whitfield. These two conspired together to write this song. Here's what it says. It says, Christ was born that man no more may die. He was born to raise the sons of earth. He was born to give them second birth. We all need desperately this second birth. Because along with the second birth comes a new nature and a new heart, and new capacities, and new abilities, and new inclinations that we don't have apart from it. Because remember, apart from this new birth, we are dead, and incapable, and unable to do what God would have us do. This is why, this is why the way that we love, I want you to hear this, the way that we love others shows whether or not we even understand Christmas. You might be saying, that sounds like a big statement, okay? I'm going to support that in just a bit. Whether or not we love witnesses to how deep the Christmas truth, okay? Not Santa Claus, not Christmas presents, not a Christmas tree, but the Christmas truth of God coming down to us, how deep this truth has gotten into us. Whether or not we love one another, whether or not we love other people in the way that we've been loved. So, is this actually what our text this morning says? This morning, our passage in 1 John 4, verses 7 to 12, I think says exactly this. Verses 7 and 11 have the same structure. There's there's a command for a certain group of people to be loving. Look at what it says in verse 7. It starts out by saying, Beloved, let us love one another verse 11, it says almost the same exact thing. It it presents it a little differently. It presents it as a condition, but it says almost the exact same thing. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So he's, he's talking to a group of people called Beloved, the Beloved of God, Beloved people. And he's saying to love another group of people called One Another. So, beloved, the beloved are those who are loved by God. They are God's beloved children. Beloved people are those who know God's love because they've received God's love. And the one another are those around you. I think John has very specifically in mind, I think John has in mind very specifically Christians loving sacrificially their brothers and sisters in Christ. When he says one another, I think that's who he's talking about. He's saying, beloved, beloved, like I would say to you, beloved, brothers and sisters, love one another. There's something so powerful and so important about loving family, spiritual family, that bears witness to those who don't know Christ or to those who are somewhat outside. Wow, something real is going on here. Something amazing is going on here. In fact, Jesus said in, uh, I think it's John 13 or maybe John 12, that by this, by this they will know you are followers of mine, by the way that you love one another. By this they will know you're my disciples. It's not by what you say. It's not even by the good works that you do outside the church primarily. It's by the way that we love one another in the household of God. If my children saw me pouring my life out and loving others and yet they received none of it, they would eventually call me a hypocrite, right? So John has in mind here, beloved brothers and sisters, let us love one another. Let us love one another. It's challenging sometimes, right? The people we're closest to, you know, we know their stuff. There's things about them. There's quirks about them. There's sin in their life that we're aware of that makes it a little more challenging sometimes to love them. You know, there are times when my children, they're, they're, I love them to pieces, but there are times when they just, you know, I was, you know they just do things. It doesn't mean I don't love them, but it means I need God's help to love them. There are many heartbreaking examples of, <clears throat> and I can name some, but I don't, I don't want to do that here, of well-known ministers of God whose children grew up despising them and despising their faith. Because they poured their lives out for everyone else except for those at home. John here is saying, Beloved, let us love one another. This family you've been brought into. You've been adopted by the Father. You've been brought into his household. You've been brought into his family. You've been brought near to him and to others through the blood of Jesus. Let us love one another. Verse 7 After after John says this, excuse me, verse eight, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Excuse me, I I actually jumped over the the part I wanted to say. Whoever loves, look at the the last part of verse seven. Whoever loves has been born of God. Remember what I said earlier about this this incapacity? We, We don't have the ability to love in this way apart from being born again, apart from this second birth, apart from this renewing work of God's spirit in our lives, where he makes us alive and gives us a new heart and new capacities. John here affirms that. He says, whoever loves shows that they have been born of God. Past tense, they were born of God, and the way that they love others shows that. Verse 8 gives us, in a sense, a warning against presumption. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that amazing? Isn't that just, I mean, John just shoots straight. John and James just like, they shoot straight, okay? Anyone who says they love God but doesn't love their brother, he says another place in First John, they're a liar. They're a liar. They don't know God because God is love, if you, don't lo- if you don't love your brother, it's because you don't know God. It's because you haven't been born of him. It's because, why? Because God is love. Essential to the very nature and character of God is love. And so if we are not loving one another, if that's, a, if that's a characteristic of our life, is we are still turned inward as the primary distinctive of our life and not loving others, not turned outward to others, to one another, it's because we don't know God because God is love. So this serves as a clear and jarring correction to us from presumption, from thinking that we can have this thing going on with God. Like I have this amazing relationship with God. I mean, in my prayer closet, man, we just, we hook up and we got this thing going on, but I'm not loving others. It's not real. It's not real. Because God is love. And those who are connected to the God of love will be turned outward in the way that they love one another. So we we see two things from these verses from our text this morning. The way that we love or don't shows whether or not we have actually understood the gospel. The very essence of the gospel is it changes us from the inside out. And second, we can only truly love others when we've been gripped When we've been gripped, truly gripped by God's love for us through Christ. And I say gripped, I mean gripped in such a way that it wrenches us free from the natural inclination toward self-centeredness wrenches us free. It has the power to, to grip us and wrench us free from this, cur- this this naturally inward curved heart where we just think about ourselves and we're focused on ourselves. Okay, so here's all that to say, here's my big idea for this morning. i gonna say big idea. If you don't leave with anything else, I want you to leave with this this morning. Okay, big idea. God's love came down at Christmas that we would live and love through him. God's love came down at Christmas so that we would live and love one another through him. I get this from verses nine and 10, where we are shown the inseparable connection between God's love coming down in Christ to us and our love for one another. Look at verse 9. It says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. This Greek word translated manifest means appeared, become visible, disclosed, displayed, evident, made known, revealed, or shown. So in this way, God's love was shown, was made manifest, appeared to us, came to us, was disclosed to us, displayed to us, was made visible to us. So apparently up until Christ coming and being manifest to us, the love of God was often veiled and obscured and not seen clearly. But when Christ came, it's like the noonday sun was shining on God's love for us to see. So I have three things this morning that I want to Uh, Three points, you might say. Three aspects of God's love to support this big idea that at Christmas, God's love came down so that believers in Christ would live in love through him. The first is love came down at Christmas by God identifying with us. By God identifying with us. Verse nine says this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That, that Those three words manifest among us, not just manifest abstractly somewhere, but manifest among us, among people. Christ came among us. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later on it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Same idea. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He came to us and dwelt among us. You might say, I wasn't there. Okay, but among people just like us. He rubbed shoulders with them. They could see him. They could touch him. They could speak with him face to face. He was made manifest among us. And later on in verse 9, it says that the father sent his only son into the world. Into the world. John Stott who is not alive anymore, but he was one of, the, one, of the, one of the evangelical giants of the 20th century, along with people like Billy Graham, uh, Francis Schaeffer, and G.I. Packer, and others like that. He said this, he said it wasn't until he understood that the, in the incarnation of Christ, God identifies with us that he trusted fully in the gospel. It wasn't just that we have this transcendent God who loves us and he's out there and he, and you know, he kind of gives us little tokens of his love here and there, but he sent his son who was God himself, the eternal son of God to dwell among us. And he identifies with us in that John Stott would go on to say that God is not isolated or insulated from our struggles, our pains and our temptations. He's not isolated from them. He's also not insulated from them because he came and lived among us. So much so that Hebrews chapter 2, in order to encourage believers, said that Jesus Christ was made like us in every single way, yet without sin. He never sinned, but he was made like us in every single way. He put on flesh and bone. He got tired like we do. He had to deal with other people like we do. Yes, even troubled people and troubling people like we do. Right? He became like us in every single way. Hebrews 4.15 goes even further and says that Christ is able to sympathize with us because he has been tempted in every way like us, yet without sin. He was tempted in every way like us, yet without sin. That's why... He's able to sympathize with us. This is such a precious truth that we know at Christmas. Christ came, the eternal Son of God came and dwelt among us, became like us in every single way, so that we could know him as a faithful, merciful, and sympathetic Savior. He knew temptation, he knew rejection. He knew difficulty. He knew what it was like to be misunderstood. He knew what it was like to be walked over and taken advantage of. He knew what it was like to be sinned against in the most horrific ways. If I were to ask a group of people, um, even this size, even, even a group of, people of a thousand, hey, tell me about Jesus. Give me one word or one phrase to describe Jesus. You guys would say a number of things, hopefully all true. I think probably all true, right? He's loving, he's a prophet, he's a king, he's a healer, he's a savior, he's a redeemer. Amen to all of that. Isaiah 53 says something stunning about Jesus that that points us to his incarnation, that points us to the fact that he was made like us in every single way, that he identifies with us. And it says this, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isn't that amazing? God is not isolated or insulated from sorrow and grief. He knows it. He was, in fact, called a man of sorrows. So you may look up here and say, Josh, you have no idea what I'm going through. I would say, you're right, I don't. I'm not up here to preach me, though. I'm up here to preach Christ. And he does. He's known sorrow deeper than you ever have. He's known grief more wrenching and challenging than you have. As he hung on the cross, you know, uh, scholars say, call it the, the cry of dereliction. As he hung on the cross, and before he breathed his last, what did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His father that he had been in fellowship with, perfect fellowship with, unstained by any sin, fellowship with the father at that moment. Was Jesus having a momentary lapse of reason? No, at that moment, the father had forsaken him. Christ ultimately identifies with us or identified and still does with us in that he became sin for us, bearing our sin on the cross. Second Corinthians 5 says, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is more stunning is who is this that came to identify with us it's God Himself. Who was this little baby born in a manger? As He was laying there in the manger or in Mary's arms or whatever, maybe one of the shepherds, one of the wise men picked him up and squeezed him a little bit, whatever. Who was it? It was God in the flesh. It was the one who, Colossians 1 says, holds all things together. It was the one who Hebrews chapter 1 says, at every moment, he's upholding the word, the world, the whole universe by the word of his power. At that moment, as he's laying in a manger, that is who is laying there. The one who came to us and identifies with us is the one who made everything. The one who made everything. The one who made the little basket made out of straw that he was laying in. The one who made the donkeys and the cattle that were surrounding him. The one who made Mary as she was holding him. The one who made the star that led the wise men to him. The one who created the angels that sang to the shepherds in the field. This is the one who came and identifies with us. In love, the creator of all things condescended and and identified with his creation. Stunning. Number two, love came down at Christmas as a gift of sheer grace. As a gift of sheer grace. In love, God gave the gift of his son. In love, God gave. God gave in love. <clears throat> On Christmas, we see, that first Christmas, we see an act of God's pure and sheer, and unadulterated grace. What is grace? It's unmerited favor. It's when, we, it's when we receive the bounty of God that we have no right to in ourselves. And that's what we see at Christmas. Verse 9 says, God sent his only son. Verse 10 says the same thing. God sent his son. But the the, the, the little phrase I want to focus on primarily for this point is this phrase in verse 10. This is love. John's going to define what love is for us. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Not that we loved God. In love, God pursued those who were not pursuing him. None of us were. None of the people on earth were truly pursuing him in this way. God pursued them by sending his son. Because God's love, excuse me, because of God, God's love, he gives and gives looking for nothing in return. Of course he wants our worship, but that's not what he's aiming at in sending his son. He's aiming at saving those who are not looking for him, those who are not pursuing him. God, sent his son as a gift of sheer grace. What did we do to deserve this? Did he look down and see some holy devout and did he say, oh my goodness, I I just noticed these people. I got to send my son to them. No. What caused God to pursue us, to come to us, to love us so deeply and so profoundly. One word, grace. Grace. It's grace. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses seven and eight, shows us, gives us this, I love this verse. I need you to follow with me as I read this. But God is speaking to the people of Israel. And he says this, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you. And chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you. Do you guys get that? The reason the Lord loves you is because he loves you. It's not because you're good looking or because. You think so? No, I'm just joking. It's not because you're good. Maybe, Maybe. There might be some good looking people. There are some good looking people in here, but that's not why he loves you. It's not because he saw something in you that he needed for his work on the earth. That's not why he loved you. He loves you because he loves you. He loves you. Sometimes in my moments of great honesty, I say, Lord, I thank you for loving me in spite of me. All right? He loves us in spite of our sin. He loves us because he loves us. Now think about if you're married here, think about you and your spouse. If you were to turn to your husband or wife, husbands, if you were to turn to your wife and say, I love you because you make me the best cookies on earth. Now that might be, you you might say, "I, I love you and I love your cooking. But the most profound way you could tell your spouse that you love them is to say, I love you because I love you. I love you as a gift of sheer grace. I love you because I love you. I love you for your cook. I love you. You make me cookies. I love you when you don't make me cookies. I love you because I love you. There are many, um, not saying there aren't any newer songs, but there are many older songs, old hymns, some of my favorites that really get this sense Think of the song And Can It Be, written by Charles Wesley. It says, Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God should die for me? Song we sing, oh we, we, we do sing that song too, but a song another song we sing, I stand amazed, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and wonder how he could love me. Or a song called When I Survey. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. God's love came down as a gift of sheer grace. And when we understand that it's a gift of grace, it will stun us. We'll sing, How amazing, how marvelous, how could He love me like this? Because of grace. Number three, love came down at Christmas by God sacrificing for us. I think this is the main point of this passage. Love came down at Christmas by God sacrificing for us. Verse 10 says, God, this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Jesus was born to die, right? He was not born to be a good moral teacher for us and give us, he wasn't mainly born to give us a good example. He was sent as a redeemer, as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the one who would save his people from their sins. He was born to die. Christmas ultimately is about Good Friday when Jesus suffered and died on the cross. And the way... We would use, excuse me, but the way that we would usually read a verse like this, that he was sent and he was made a propitiation for our sins is to say that through Christ, our sins are forgiven. And this is certainly true, but I don't think it gets to the heart of what this phrase actually or fully means. The key word in this, in this phrase is propitiation. It's a big theological word. If you have an NIV Bible, your, your Bible, your translation might say atoning sacrifice. Same thing. Jesus Christ was made the propitiation for our sins. He's made the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This word means that Christ appeased the wrath of God that was against us by bearing it for us. In other words, as Christ hung on the cross, he was suffering the punishment that the law of God required for the sins that I've committed and the sins you've committed. It's not just that our sins are forgiven, but it's that Jesus Christ became the object of God's judgment in our place for our sins. That's what propitiation means. So go, it's, praise God, our sins are forgiven, but God is not able to just sweep sin under the rug. Sin must be punished. God is a just judge, and so he judged sin in Christ. For some in our day, and not only in our day, ever since the beginning, probably, of the church, this idea is abhorrent. It's hated. To think that God's anger was being absorbed in Christ on the cross. Some have even, this guy wrote a book a few years ago, even sarcastically calling it some, calling, what, calling this view cosmic child abuse. That, that's just... That's just. He, I mean, this guy was just basically saying, it's just pathetic. This is a pathetic view to think that God is so angry about sin that he just had to punish his son. Well, of course, there's a caricatured picture there, but this is what scripture teaches. This is what Jesus was doing. Romans chapter three, verses 25 and 27 says that, Christ, that redemption in Christ, or redemption is in Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Verse 27 says, so that he would be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Propitiation, so that Jesus was the propitiation. He was absorbing in himself the wrath of God in our place so that God would be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. This is a a prophecy speaking of the coming Messiah. Says, yet the Lord... Was pleased to crush him. The Father was pleased to crush his servant, Jesus. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus, as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it says that he's sweating, he is in such anguish, he's sweating drops of blood. And he's asking the Father, he says, Is it possible for this cup to pass from me? Of course, the cup he's speaking of is the cup of the Father's judgment on sin. In Matthew 26, as Jesus, I mentioned this earlier, as Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, he's experiencing the turning away of the Father, where he's being forsaken, where he has right then becoming an object of God's, justice and judgment for our sin. Furthermore, from a philo- just from, purely from a philosophical point of view, those who would have the God of love, excuse me, those who would free or save the God of love from such an act that they deem unconscionable, ironically forfeit the highest display of God's love. Those who want to free God from this barbaric view that he's punishing sin in Christ, Oh my goodness, that's just barbaric. We can't think like that. They want to free God from this. But this is the highest display of God's love. This is the highest display of God's love. In this, the love of God was manifest. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. In love, the Father sacrificed the Son for us. In love, the Son came and gave himself for us. The Father and the Son are not in conflict here. They're in perfect unity as they are performing this great act of love for us. Love came down at Christmas, which drove Christ to the cross to deal with what our sin deserves before a holy God, thus demonstrating the great love that he has for us. Verse 9 tells us that God's purpose in this is not that his love would end in us and just stay in us. And we just would have these nice feelings of God's love for us. And we could and we just sing songs about God's love for us. But it's actually to change the way that we live. Verse 9 says, In this the love of God was manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. See that those two words, so that, so that we might live through him. The love of God came to us, came down at Christmas. He identified with us as an act of free grace, sheer grace that he sent his son, that Christ came. He, he, He sacrificed in the most amazing, breathtaking way. And why did he do this? So that we would live through him. God's purpose is not that we would merely know information intellectually, but rather that we would know and experience the love of God in such a way that it changes us at the core of our being, at the core of who we are. The Christian message is not external impositions. You must do this. You must do this. You must do this. But it is radically internal where God comes to us and changes us at the core of our being, And we live from the inside out, from a changed nature, from a heart that is radically transformed. So he sent his son so that we would live through him. God's love that came down at Christmas is not meant to remain out there or even right here that I can just kind of access, right? just kind of just kind of access here and there when i want to it's meant to come in take up residence and begin changing me at the core of my soul my heart at the heart level i like good food amen yeah couple other people, at least one other person does too. I'm sure there's some other people that do. It's like having the steak dinner. My wife would throw in some veggies, some green veggies, and have it right out in front of you. And it is delicious. And it's out there. In fact, it's right here. And it smells good, and it looks good. But until it gets in me, It does me no real good, right? What does living through Christ look like? It looks like this. So he came so that we would live through him. What does that look like? Loving one another. Right back to the beginning, right? Loving one another. Verse 12, our last verse from our text this morning says, if we love, it shows that God is in us. It shows that he's in us. If we love, the love of God abides in us. It shows that he's there. It shows that he is there. And it says, and his love is perfected in us. What an amazing statement. His love is perfected in us. Now, I don't think that means that we know his love perfectly or that he's done with us. But when we are loving others, it shows that he's there. And the word perfected, I think probably more likely means it finds its fulfillment in us because it doesn't end on us, right? It find, makes its way in us and then it's going out to others, to one another. I'm not, can, God is not interested in us just, receive, just being like a reservoir, you know, just taken in. Just, just a sitting, you know, ends up being kind of like a cesspool. No, not cesspool, but just this sitting, this place of sitting water, but rather we are to be like this river that's receiving this never-ending flow of God's love through the gospel, through Christ, and then having it pour out of us to others. Because then it shows that God is in us and his love is perfected or finds fulfillment or is completed in us because it's flowing through us. You are meant to be a river and not a reservoir. You're meant to be a river and not a puddle. Okay? All right. So real quick, I want to close with this. I want you to, with me, make resolutions. Okay? We need God's help. Say, God, by grace, work these into our lives over the next weeks and months. Do this, God. Okay? So number one, here's what I want you to do. Set these truths before you day and night. And pray that God would awaken you to them, like Paul, so that, like Paul, you would say, The love of Christ controls me. Okay? Put these truths before you day and night and pray, God, awaken me to these things. Show me these things. I want to see the connection here between your love for me and the way that it flows out of me to others. God, change my heart. God, help me so I'm not curved inward, right? Even though though we're believers, sometimes apart from God's work and apart from us being attentive to things, we just kind of turn inward again, right? God, help me. Do this in me, God. The reason I stress meditation or putting these before you day and night is because Psalm 1 says the blessed man is the person who's meditating on the scriptures day and night, right? Right? Not showing up to a a weekly worship service. That's great. I love it. But someone who's meditating on the law of God day and night. He, this man, will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. And he will bear fruit in a season. His leaves will not wither. And everything that he does, he will prosper. Okay? So you want to prosper in the love of God? Put these things before you. In fact, here's something really easy. Over the next month, over the next month, in January... Memorize these six verses and think of the connections. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. And whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. Whoever doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. God sent his son so that we might live and love through him. He sent his son to be a propitiation for us so that we'd be changed and be empowered to love others. And the reason I stress prayer is because... This is, this is how we call down God's blessing on what we're doing. We can all read a book. We need the Spirit of God to breathe on this and make it live in us. Martin Luther, this is like you know, this was before the, the the Protestant Reformation started. He said that he was, he was meditating on three verses in Romans one. He needed to know what those meant. And so he's, he's praying over them. He was reading them. He was trying to look for connections. He said, I beat on this scripture day and night, pleading with God to show me. And guess what? God did. God opened up his eyes to see the truth there. And the rest is history. The Protestant Reformation was birthed in that room with Martin Luther and God. Okay, number two, make sure that this is how we, excuse me, make sure this is how you measure God's love. Do you desire to be strong and solid, immovable in, amidst the onslaught of dangers, toils, and snares, difficulties, and challenges? Do you desire to be immovable and strong? Nod your head with me, please. Unless you don't want to, okay? Okay, then let this be the measure of, Of God's love. Okay? Let this be the foundation. Let this be the ballast of God's love for you. In the midst of the storms of life. Let it be an anchor. In the windy whirlwind. Of life. And we all have wind. We all have. It rains on all of us. Sometimes the storms heavier on some. That's not up to us. We're just called to be faithful. Let's see, it it was this way for Paul. Paul, of all the people in the New Testament, experienced such unspeakable suffering for the sake of Christ. I mean, breathtaking suffering for Christ. And yet Paul was able to say this about Christ. He loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, can you say that? When you wake up to screaming children or children that are throwing up, I got a text this morning from someone said, hey, we're not going to be there. One of my kids threw up. Can you say that? Oh, man. <laughs> Knee deep and stuff. But Christ loved me and gave himself for me. As you're going through the deepest and darkest trial in your life, are you able to say, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. If you're using some other measuring stick, you will ride the roller coaster of life like everyone else who doesn't know Jesus. You're just going to ride the, the, ro- the roller coaster of life. You're going to be blown here and there. But if this is your measuring stick, then you'll be strong. I'm not saying you won't be beaten up a little bit, but you'll be strong. You'll have an anchor in the love of God. Make sure you 're looking to the Incarnation of Christ and to the cross of Christ as a cornerstone of your faith and understanding of god 's love for you, okay Number three, be deliberate about loving one another. Be deliberate about loving one another and I think a good a good place to start is just think about some or you 're probably aware of some, even here in the church maybe some who aren't here for specific reasons, who are in trouble. They're sick. They're going through something extremely difficult. They have financial hardship and other things. Don't settle for thoughts of goodwill toward them. That's good. I mean, have goodwill thoughts toward them. But be deliberate about going to them and loving them and real, practical, nitty-gritty kind of ways. Here's a couple ways. Okay, I just try to be really practical. Number one, commit to praying for those you know are sick. Every day, commit daily to praying for them. If you need a reminder, put a reminder on your phone. Seven o'clock in the morning, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to go down the list. We have a list on our bulletin every week of people we know who are in need of Prayer. Pray for them daily. Love them. Love one another. Here's another thing you can do. Commit to making a meal once per month or dropping a meal off. Okay? Once a month and giving it to someone who could really use it. Okay? Someone who's sick. Someone who just had a baby. We have, fo- we have lots of foster parents here who are bringing children into their homes. <clears throat> they could probably use... Uh, Food. Food always helps. Uh, Someone who is financially strapped and could use help. Just very practical things we can do. Be deliberate. Be deliberate. And the reason why I I said daily or monthly, because if we don't have a plan, if we don't have a plan to do something, resolve to do something good, then more than likely, as we leave here today, these, these goodwill thoughts, these things that we'd like to do, probably won't happen. Octavius Winslow said this. I want to close with this. There is no other solution to the marvelous mysteries of Christ's incarnation and sacrificial death but this. Christ has loved us. Do you know his love? Do you know the deep love of Christ? He goes on to say his incarnation is love stooping. His sympathy is love weeping. His compassion is love supporting. His grace is love acting. His teaching is the voice of love. His silence is the repose of love. His patience is the restraint of love. His obedience is the labor of love. His suffering is the travail of love. His cross is the altar of love. His death is the burnt offering of love. His resurrection is the triumph of love. His ascension into heaven is the enthronement of love. His sitting down at the right hand of God is the intercession of love. Such is the deep, the vast, the boundless ocean of Christ's love. Today, as we look back at Christmas just last week and look forward to 2014, my desire, my deepest desire is that we would aim and that we'd be a community that is first gripped by the love of God that came down through Christ, truly gripped. I mean, just gripped at the core of our being. And two, that we would be shaped by this love, namely in the way that we love one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. God, I thank you that um, your word is living and active and sharper than a a two-edged sword. And God, it, 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 it just cuts down deep into our soul to where it needs to. So it exposes things. It, it encourages us deeply. And also at times it, it shows us areas of need in our life. God, I pray that both of these things would happen. I pray that both of these things have happened this morning. God, that we've been deeply encouraged by your love and deeply challenged to pursue love and to grow in this in our own lives. Father, I pray as we leave this morning that we would be resolved to this, to this highest calling that we have as believers, that because of your great love for us, we would pursue the way that we love one another. God, change us, help us, Lord. God, if there's any here who has never experienced what we talked about earlier, the second birth, this being born again, I pray, God, that you'd use this message as a means to awaken them to life. God, I pray for each one of us here this morning. We're all on a journey. God, I pray for each one of us that this love of Christ would go deeper and deeper into us. We'd be radically changed by it. That you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen.